Good, good. Anybody, anybody watching the Olympics? There's a few of you. Have you seen any sports that you don't normally watch at the Olympics? Yeah? Y'all don't normally watch badminton? Or I was watching last night, and they just showed a highlight of handball. Anybody keep up with, with the national or the, the international handball, you know, association, I guess? I don't know. But we don't have an American team in it. We haven't had one in for a long time. The commentator or the announcer guy was funny. Uh, he said, we, don't have an Amer- we haven't had an American team in, in, in the Olympic handball competition. Uh, I mean, it's been I mean, it's a long time, 20-something years. And he said, maybe between now and the next Olympics, uh, surely the Americans can get good at handball. That was his comment. Surely we can get good at handball. Uh, I said, well, well, thank you. Uh, maybe he should go coach a team or something, I guess. Uh, but you, f- you find out a lot of different things about all of this. And, you know, I, I th- you hear the stories of these athletes and um, all that they've gone through. And you see them compete. And you see the ones who work so hard and diligently. And, and, and some of them, really, the camaraderie they have with each other and the compassion they have on one another. We were watching the marathon yesterday, the men's marathon. And the guy who won blew everybody out of the water. I mean, they weren't even close. I mean, he beat them by over a minute like a minute 20, and uh, he got to the end, and uh, he was holding up his flag, and he was excited, and then those other guys who were behind him crossed the finish line, and they all like collapsed on the ground, just dead, and this guy, he would hug them, and they would fall on the ground, and then he, the winner of the race, the marathon, went and got them all water. He was, bring, like, they were, he was there holding his flag, still draped over his shoulders, and people were wanting to interview him, but he was bringing the guys who were behind him water. Uh, just because he wanted to bring him water. And the announcers were talking about this guy and how long he's been doing the marathon, what a nice guy he is, and how humble he is. And you can just see it. He wasn't promoting himself. He was wanting to care for these other guys that he obliterated. <laughs> but he, he was. It, was. it was such a thing to watch. But watching some of these sports, what's interesting to me is you hear about all their training and the things they've done for years, and they just want to get on the podium. They just want a medal, you know. Of course, they want gold, but they really, at the end of the day, they just want a medal. They, they want first, second, or third. doesn't matter the color. They just want to get a medal and, and get on the podium. And, um, but then you get to these team competitions. And what's, inter- what's fascinating to me, and we, we heard it um, the other night characterized in a very unique way, is you get to the gold medal game, like baseball or volleyball, and uh, one of the teams loses and they get silver. I mean, second place in the world. But they're just devastated. Because even though they get silver, they, they walk onto the podium having just suffered a loss. And so it's like bittersweet, right? I mean, they, they lose, but then they still win because they get a medal. They get a silver. And well, we heard it the other night, it, it put in this unique way that we never thought about before. Uh, this, this girl from one of the teams that got a bronze, uh, she was saying that they were asking, well, didn't you want gold? And she said, well, we're, you know, of course, but we're excited that we got what we got, and we're excited for bronze. And she said, because, you know, bronze and gold are really the only two medals uh, that you receive with a win, which we'd never thought about before, you know, because you can get silver, it's better than bronze, but you get silver from a loss. You get bronze from a win, 
and you can walk into it with excitement, you know, and having trained all this time to get all this, and, and, and even those, those teams, we're watching the baseball game the other night, and the team that lost, I mean, they were just devastated. I mean, it's like losing the World Series. They're all just sitting there like, how did our lives come to this? How did we get so off track that we lost? And the baseball game was a shutout. How, how did this happen? How did our lives get off track like this? And the announcers are like, and this team won gold, and this team won silver, and they're showing all the faces of the guys who won silver, and they're all like, I don't know what to do with my life. Maybe I should give up baseball. Maybe this isn't what we should be doing for our lives. And I'm thinking, these guys had worked so hard and so diligently and did this, and they're feeling like everything they worked for didn't pan out right just because they got it from a loss. Well, what we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 37 is sometimes it feels like our life may be going off track. It wasn't what we anticipated. It hasn't gone like what we thought. But in reality, maybe God was in the midst of that more than we thought. Maybe we are right in the middle of where we're supposed to be. Genesis chapter 37, we're going to start down at verse 12. You can use a Bible on the rack there in front of you. It's on page 31 uh, if you want to use one of those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. That's yours. That's your Bible. Write your name. If you can find one of those little golf pencils in the pew, write your name in the front. That's your Bible. Um, we're going to be on page 31, Genesis chapter 37. Last week, we started looking at the life of Joseph, a man named Joseph, who was one of 12 sons, and his brothers hated his guts because his father loved him more than the others. Um, Joseph didn't do anything that made them hate him. They just hated him because his father loved him more, and it was very visual. His father treated him, who was the 11th born, treated him like he was the firstborn, gave him stuff that should have been the firstborn's stuff but he gave it to the 11th born, to Joseph, and so his brothers didn't like him very much. And then Joseph started receiving these visions from God that something is going to happen, and, and his family is going to bow down to him, and they all felt like that was a shot at them, like they were being belittled by their brother, and so that his brothers hated him even more. And well, we're going to get down to verse 12. All this has been transpiring, and all this hate towards Joseph has been swirling around, and uh, down at verse 12 is where we're going to start. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, who was their father, uh, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers in the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, if you were here last week, you know how Joseph's story began was Joseph went and gave his father a report that his brothers were doing things that weren't very good. Uh, his brothers were doing some dishonorable things, and he reported that to his father. And now look, his father knew this, that his brothers also didn't like that Joseph gave that report, but his father still sends Joseph out, and, look, and what does he say? See if it is well with your brothers. Go and spy on them a little more and just tell me if they're doing something that's not so great so I can get on to them. And so he sends Joseph out. And Joseph goes uh, to the Valley of Hebron, to this city called Shechem. Now, this was like 50 miles, okay? This is like three or four days' worth of walking. Um, Joseph may have had some people with him, maybe some servants, or he may have just gone by himself. Um, I'm, I'm sure all you, you mamas are, are very, you know, excited about sending your child out to walk 50 miles with no cell phone. Uh, but... And they sent Joseph out to find the brothers, and he, he walked about 50 miles. He came to this area called Shechem. 
Uh, but he discovers his brothers aren't there. Uh, verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, Dothan was another 15 miles away, another day, day and a half, two days away. So all told, he's walked 65-ish miles away from where they were camped, where his family was. And, and he makes his way over here to Dothan, which is where they've had some uh, things go on in the past. And he gets over there, uh, verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So you would think things have escalated now. They spot him from a long way off because one of the things that his father did in giving him things of the firstborn was he gave him this special coat, this robe of many colors. And it was very bright, and they saw Joseph coming over the hill, and they said, there's the guy with the coat. Here he comes. And they roll their eyes. They get frustrated, and some of them speak. Uh, well, here he comes, the dreamer. Let's kill him. They conspire to kill him, their own brother. They can, I, I mean, I know... Some of you may have had ill feelings towards your siblings. Surely not in this room. Y'all are all holy, and you've never done that ever, all right? Uh, you've never felt like your, your, your siblings were frustrating or irritating or anything because your siblings are perfect, right? Y'all are very quiet. Everybody's siblings in the room are just absolutely perfect. I see some siblings looking at each other like, you know I'm perfect, like for real. Uh, and, uh, uh, but at this point, some of the guys start conspiring to kill him. And you think, well, that's gone a little far. That's a little too much. Well, the thing about thinking hateful thoughts, and hate is a sin, is that sin will take you further than you ever want to go. It will lead you to a place you never thought possible. And it will start small. It will, like, for, like for these brothers, it, it, was, it was just ill feelings. They just didn't like him. And then it developed and festered and grew into bitterness and, and developed into full-blown hatred. And Jesus tells us later on that hatred is murder. And so they were already thinking that they hated him to the point they just wished him would die to now they want to act on it. And that may seem out of place because you would think, I don't want to kill my siblings. I mean, really. But some of Joseph's brothers were killers. They've killed before out of revenge, out of anger. And so in among his brothers, you've got these guys, some of his brothers who, who have actually killed people. And so they begin to have this conversation. Here he comes. They can see him, and he's walking a great distance, and they're talking among themselves. What are we going to do when he gets here? How are we going to treat him when he gets here? And some of those guys begin to speak up, and they conspire. So it's, it's, they're coming up with a strategy of how to implement this sin because sin will take you farther than you want to go. And so look at what happens next. Uh, verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now these pits, this is it. these pits are, are um, what are they called? I got it here. A cisterns. Now a cistern, it, it, it's, some of them are natural, some of them are, are man-made. They're just big holes in the ground, and they would, they would be in places where it typically didn't rain a whole lot, 
or, or, that, or not where, where it did rain a whole lot, but there weren't wells. Maybe there wasn't underground water and they couldn't dig wells. So they would, they would develop these cisterns, um, these big holes to help uh, uh, gather in the rainwater so they could feed their animals. And so in this area where they were and they had their, uh, their flocks out there, there were cisterns around. And so they said, let's just grab him and kill him and throw him into one of these holes, throw his body into one of the holes, and we'll, we'll uh, uh, you know, tear his clothes up and take clothes back and make Dad think that, that he, some animal just got him and we just happened to find his, you know, coat of many colors. Let's just, let's just do this, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to think about this and, 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 and actually do this thing and kill him. And they began to think about it and talk about it, and they kind of stirred one another up. You see, I don't know if you've ever been in a group where one person says something and somebody else jumps on that bandwagon and kind of says something else and backs that thing up and they say something else and it kind of becomes this uh, uh, dog pile about this issue and they stir one another up and, and kind of rev each other up to do something that probably they shouldn't do. Uh, just like these brothers are revving each other up with this deal. We're going to kill him. And even to the point that the brothers who weren't murderers are getting geared up because the murdering brothers are gearing them all up with their hatred they've already got. And, and, and they're stirring one another up. But the thing is, is what began as a thought is now developing into action because they have invested time in the, the fermenting of the thought. And the thing about thoughts, whether good thoughts or, or sinful thoughts, thoughts feed on invested time. Thoughts feed on invested time. The more time you spend investing on a particular thought, the bigger it's going to grow, the stronger it's going to get. And the bigger it grows and the stronger it gets, the more it's going to need to feed. And the more it feeds, the bigger it's going to get, the stronger it's going to get. It's going to take root, and you're not going to be able to rip it out of your head in one blow. And so thoughts feed on invested time. The more time you invest on a particular thought, the more you're going to be dedicated to that thing. And so these brothers are dedicated to this thought, and, and they're, 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 they're feeding it, and it's growing within them. But this can also happen with us, not just with bad thoughts. It does happen with bad thoughts in a tremendous way. And it can take us, like I said a minute ago, to a place we never thought we would be, all because of a thought that somebody else planted within us. They just made an offhand comment, and it sticks with us, and we can't let it go. And we, we just can't get rid of it. But God knew this about humanity. And he knew but it's, that it's not just with bad thoughts, it's also with good. Which is why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the way to have peace is to only think about the things from verse 8. Alyssa, put verse 8 back up there. And if you notice in there, there's no or. Finally, brothers, whatever is true or honorable or just or pure, there's a comma. So the idea is and. Whatever is true and honorable and just, and pure, and lovely, and commendable, and excellent, and praiseworthy. That's what you're supposed to think about. You say, well, the thing that I'm thinking of, it's true, but it may not be praiseworthy. So, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I know it's true, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's true, but it's not necessarily honorable. It's true, but it, it may not be excellent. 
you know, it's, it's true, but I, it's not lovely. I can tell you that. Well, what Paul is saying is, then don't let it stick in you. Because even if it's true, if it's not those other things, it's going to poison you. Gossip doesn't have to be untrue. Gossip just has to be something negative about somebody else. And you can gossip to yourself about somebody else. Gossip doesn't have to be you speaking to somebody else. If you're festering on the thing within yourself, then it's not doing Philippians 4.8. And it, it, it leads us to a place where we should not be if we're wanting to live for the Lord. Do what God has for us because thoughts feed uninvested time. Thoughts feed uninvested time that we, in, that we in, invest in those thoughts. And it will either, those thoughts will either lead to spiritual decay or, as uh, Philippians 4.9 said, to peace. So the thoughts we have will lead us towards spiritual decay or lead us towards peace uh, based on the time we invest in those particular thoughts. And now all these brothers that are, that are here in this valley, that are here near Dothan, that are thinking of conspiring to kill their brother, there was one outlier. There was one brother who it did not set right, they were going to kill Joseph. And he knew that if they continued to, to stir each other up, they'd get into a frenzy that could not be stopped. And so he spoke up immediately, this brother. And now, we're going to read his name in just a second. This brother had his own moral issues, <laughs> to say the least, as we all do. None of us are faultless. But in this moment he speaks up to stop this problem. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Now, Reuben was the firstborn. Reuben was the one who should have received the stuff Joseph was receiving. Reuben was the one who should have been receiving the love that Joseph was receiving. Reuben was the one who should have received a coat of many colors. But Reuben's the one who speaks up for Joseph and says to these murdering brothers, let's not kill him. We're not going to kill him. Look at the next verse. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here, this cistern here, in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might, be, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So Reuben's plan was, okay, just throw him in the pit, and then Reuben was going to come and pull him out of the pit and take him home himself. Reuben was going to take care of Joseph, even though Joseph was receiving everything he should have been receiving. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, now I've been trying to picture this all week. Undoubtedly, if Joseph was apprehensive about walking in there, the text doesn't give us that. The impression we get is just a guy going to see his brothers having no idea that they're about to beat him up. Joseph walk, I picture Joseph walking, hey, guys, and they grab him. Look what it says. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, these were not shallow pits. These were not shallow cisterns. These were not shallow holes. It was, may have been a little muddy and soft at the bottom, so it wasn't a hard, you know, fall, but it wouldn't have been fun either, bumping against the walls and smacking down into that mud at the bottom, having your brothers just rip your coat off of you, not knowing what's going on. 
Who knows how he fell, what he fell on, but he fell down to the bottom of this thing. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And he's down there at the bottom of this pit. But he also had his brother Reuben speak up for him. Immediately put a, try to put a stop to the sinful participation. You know, Reuben gets a bad rap a lot. Because if you back up a few chapters, you can read about Reuben. And he had some questionable moral character. But Reuben did the right thing here. Stood up to murdering brothers and said, we're not doing that. How often, don't raise your hand. How often do you have someone around you say something that is not Philippians 4.8, true, honorable, praiseworthy, excellent, and you don't say anything about it. You don't stop it. You just let it go. We all do that from time to time. But here's Reuben, and he stops his brother. We're not killing him. You are not going to kill Joseph. You're not going to do it. So they rip his coat off and throw him in the pit. Verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. <laughs> Maybe they're Baptists. They throw him in the pit and they sit down to eat. Okay, we're, we're going to just have a little you know, food right now in this moment. So they just plop themselves down, to, which is interesting to me. Joseph is in the pit, no food. They're at the top of the pit and they've got food. But in just a few chapters, they're not going to have any food and they're going to go to Joseph who does have food. And they're going to beg him for food. But here they are. They're sitting at the top, eating their food. The smell is wafting down to Joseph down in the bottom of this pit. And they look up, and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way down uh, to carry it down to Egypt. So these are relatives of, of Joseph and his brothers. Um, but... The term Ishmaelites didn't necessarily mean they were descendants of Ishmael. It had become, by this time, really a general term of people who just wandered the desert, wandered the desert. So these are tradesmen. They call them Ishmaelites. They were probably from the Ishmaelite family uh, in there, uh, maybe cousins somewhere. Uh, but they were traveling the desert, bringing these spices and things to Egypt to sell. And so the brothers are eating their meal, and they look up and see these guys. Verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? <laughs> Judah. Judah, from whom comes Jesus? Judah, from whom, you know, the descendant, the line of, lion of the tribe of Judah. It's not profitable if we kill him. What do we gain if we kill him? But if we sell him, we can gain some profit. Look, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let... Not our hand be upon him, for he, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. <laughs> Just, I find this whole conversation, I mean, it, it's sad and, and twisted, but it's, it's ironic and, and funny in a little ways. I mean, he's, let's don't, he's our brother after all, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave and send him to Egypt, where he'll probably die anyway. But it won't be on our hands, and, and we can get a little money for this, all right? Let's just take care of the situation. And Judah says this, and his brothers listen to him. That's a good idea. All right, we can make a little, I, I need a little change. We got to stop by, you know, 7-Eleven on the way home. I need, I need something, a little snack. So we got we to sell him a little bit. And so the brothers listen to him, verse 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by. This is where the, these guys were from, Midian. 
And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Every time I've read this, I try to put myself in Joseph's head. What is he thinking? I mean, his brothers, right? I mean, his family. They beat him up. They toss him in this pit. They take his coat that his father gave him. Undoubtedly, at the bottom of the pit, I mean, they're up there at the top eating. He can hear their discussion. Let's not kill him. Wait, what? They were going to do what to me? Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. Let's just sell him. It's no big deal. Levi, didn't your wife want a necklace? Let's just sell him. You know, you can use that money. Let's just sell him. I don't know how you would be if you were Joseph, but I, I kind of picture him, you know, kind of yelling, wait, you don't need to do that? And they drop a rope and they pull him out. I doubt he's going quietly, right? I mean, if, if your siblings are doing something to you, are you just going to let it sit? Maybe at this point he's crying as well. And they hand him off to these traders who probably tied him up, maybe to walk behind one of their animals. And the brothers are then going to watch Joseph walk away as a slave to Egypt, to, as far as they knew, a slave in Egypt to die. And Joseph is walking down there. He's alone. He's betrayed. He's hopeless. Heading into a situation he's never been into. Facing the unthinkable with no way out except hardship and probably death. Every hope he had, every dream he had, every plan he had for his future is gone. And nothing will ever be the same again as he's being led to Egypt, a place he doesn't want to go. And he's on his way down there. But we learn something in the next verse. Remember Reuben who stood up for him? Reuben, oldest brother? Well, he wasn't there when they sold him. Maybe he didn't like the food they brought from home. Maybe he went into town to, you know, B.C. Chick-fil-A. But verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and where shall I go? Reuben's broken. Reuben was going to rescue Joseph. Reuben was going to take Joseph back. And so when Reuben gets back to where his brothers were, he's like, what have you done? He's He's gone. Now what are we going to do? So it's almost as though the brothers hadn't quite completely thought out their plan. <laughs> they just allowed the emotion of their hatred to drive their decisions. And they hadn't thought, well, what's going to come after we do this thing? And that tends to happen when, when we base our decisions on, you know, how we're feeling in the moment. Well, we may be feeling something different tomorrow, and we haven't really thought this thing out <laughs> And so Reuben shows up and he says, what have you guys done? What have you done? This, you can't repair this. Look at verse um, 31. So his brothers having, Reuben's brothers having taken advantage of his absence, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. Now, you read that, it seems very specific, right? They slaughter a goat, they kill a goat and they take Joseph's colorful coat and they dip it in the goat's blood. You know, sometimes, I mean, nothing in the Bible is there by accident. 
And you're, you see that a goat, you know, why, why not a lamb? Why not? I mean, maybe they had extra goats. Maybe that was their flock. Maybe they didn't have, you know, other things. Well, the thing about the goat is they took the goat and they killed the goat in order to deceive their father. When their father was young, he took a goat and he killed the goat to deceive his father. You see, when Israel, when he was younger, his name was Jacob, he killed the goat and put on goat skin and went into his father who was blind and pretended to be his brother. And his father felt the hair from the goat on his arms because Jacob's brother was a hairy dude and, and thought he was his brother. And Jacob had killed the goat to deceive his father. And it would seem as though then Jacob never dealt with his sin. And now his sons, the next generation, is dealing with the exact same sin. Killing a goat and dipping it in blood to deceive their father. You see, when we don't deal with our own sin, we do pass it on. When we don't deal with the hatred that's in our heart, we pass it on. When we don't deal with something, we pass it on. You see, this, 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 this uh, generational issue does finally get cut off, not because of the brothers. Because as we're going to see way on down the line, Joseph is the one who forgives. He cuts off the deception finally. Not initially, he, he has some deception in him as well, but at the end of the day, he forgives. And this line of deception is cut off. We have to deal with it or we pass it on. And so they're doing the same thing their father did, killing a goat in order to deceive. Verse 32. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Now, before we pass on, I do want to point something out there. They sent the robe. Their plan, but they send it. They send it, I mean, BC, UPS. They, they didn't take it to their father. They sent it ahead with a note. We found this. Is it, is it Joseph's? We, th we think it is. Is it Joseph's? Maybe they didn't want to deal with the fallout of, of his reaction. Maybe they told a servant to take it, and, and, and the idea was, all right, see how we react, and then come back and tell us. And if you don't come back, we know he killed you, and, and okay. But see how he reacts first, and then we'll come into the room. You know, kind of idea here. And uh, so they send the robe ahead. And they, I mean, it seems, I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty heartless. <laughs> the, whole, I mean, the whole thing is heartless. But they dip the robe in blood, and, and they're making their father think that some animal attacked Joseph and ripped him to pieces. And they're not going to be there to comfort him. They're just sending it ahead to do this. And so they send the robe ahead. Uh, verse 33. And he identified it. And said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth on, on his loins, and mourned for his sons many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, that's the grave, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. His father was weeping. His father was overcome. And his brothers were the cause. They saw this, and Joseph was unconsolable, or Jacob was unconsolable. But meanwhile, verse 36, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, 
an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So while all this is going back with Joseph's family, Joseph has been sold in to the captain of the guard as a slave in the house there. His ultimate destination that his visions gave him of a future where everyone is bowing down to him, it seems like it's taken a detour and his life has gone off track because he's a slave in the house of an Egyptian officer. And he's heard things about Egyptians. At this time in history, they have the most powerful army on the planet. This is, they are the big dogs. And he's been sold into the household of one of the officers there to serve as a slave. Probably thinking constantly, if I mess up, they're going to kill me. These are Egyptians. This is what they do. And he's down there, and he's, he's, he's trying to function in this place alone, seemingly hopeless by himself because his life took this detour from the destination he thought he was headed towards, from the plan he thought he was going towards. Everybody's going to bow down to me, but now I'm a slave, and nobody bows down to me, and I bow down to everybody else. And he's down there, but... Even though he's off track, he's not alone. And it's the same with our lives. Even when we feel off track, the Lord is with us. Even when we feel off track, the Lord is right there with us. Skip ahead to chapter 39. Uh, the first couple verses there. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And what are those first few words? The Lord was with Joseph. You see, even when life feels off track, the Lord is with you. Even when things didn't go at all like you anticipated, the Lord is with you. Even if you've been knocked off track by somebody else, the Lord is with you. Even when you've been knocked off track by your own decisions, the Lord is with you. Even when life's been knocked off track just because of life being hard, the Lord is with you. You're not alone. And if you read the Old Testament, you're going to find that statement a lot. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Even when things are bad and terrible, read the Psalms. And sometimes David will be writing in the Psalms. And he'll be writing about how bad things are. And everybody's out to get him. And people want to kill him. And he, they're doing all these bad things. But by the end of it, he begins to praise the Lord because he knows the Lord is with him. The Lord is with you, even when things feel off track, even when things feel like they're never going to get back on track and you don't know how to get back to where you were. But maybe the point of it is you're not supposed to get back to where you were. Joseph is off track from what he thought his life was going to look like. But I want to point something out that I discovered in researching this passage. Look back in chapter 37. Verses 15 through 17. Look at this interaction here. So Joseph gets to Shechem. He hadn't found his brothers yet. I'm going to read it, uh, all three verses. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. I have always wondered, every time I've read this, how did this guy know who his brothers are? I'm seeking my brothers. Okay. What are their names? What do they look like? What do they smell like? Help me out a little bit here. I don't know you. I don't know them. Who are your brothers? Well, I discovered something that Jewish tradition 
says about this man. Jewish rabbis teach that this man was an angel. It's not specified who this guy is. It says he, the man found Joseph wandering in the fields. Just walked up to him, found him wandering around. An unnamed individual finds Joseph walking around this field. He may have been an angel. He may not have been. May have just been a dude from Shechem. We don't know. But Jewish tradition holds that this man was an angel. And so Joseph, walking into a dangerous situation where his brothers are planning to kill him, end up selling him into slavery, Joseph, walking into that dangerous situation, even there, he was not alone. If this man was an angel, he was being guided by the Lord there into the storm. I'd be thinking, God, take me around the storm. Let's, let's, all right, I see, I look up on my app, storm's coming. I'm not going to go that way. I'm gonna, I want to go a different way. But he's led right into the midst of the storm. Because God, does, God is concerned with every element of our lives. But his plan is more than just the immediate. God's plan is long-term. God's plan is longer term than any one of us, than any one of us will be alive. God's plan is eternal. That far surpasses how long you're going to live. God's plan is long term. We're a part of it. He wants us to be a part of it. But for Joseph, he was thinking about the immediate. And he goes, and this man guides him to where his brothers were. But if this man were an angel, even walking into a dangerous place, Joseph was not alone. In the same way, you are never alone, ever. You may feel like you're alone. You may feel like nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows. You may feel that way sometimes. And it may be true. But the fact of the matter is, everybody's got hard stuff. Some people don't display it. Some people put it on Facebook every day. But some people just don't show it. And everybody's going, even the person that you get irritated with on the phone, even the person you get irritated with at the restaurant, even the person you get irritated with because they took the last thing at Walmart that you came there to get, they're going through hard stuff. Just like you are. Going through hard stuff. And even in that moment, the Lord is with you and the Lord is with them. You're not alone, ever the Lord is with you. Just like the Lord was with Joseph in a field wandering around near Shechem. Lord was with Joseph when he was at the bottom of a pit. Lord was with Joseph when he was overhearing his brothers talking about killing him. The Lord was with Joseph when they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. The Lord was with Joseph when he was sold to Potiphar as a slave in a foreign country. The Lord was with Joseph. And that, the thing about God is he does not change. And so the same God that was with Joseph in, a, in, in the household of Potiphar is the same God who's with you sitting in a green pew. Same God, who's, if you're watching online, who's sitting with you in your living room watching this or sitting with you on your bed or sitting with you, honestly, in your bathroom. The same God is with you wherever you are. The same God is with you. You're not alone. You're not Alone, And even though at times you may feel like, like your life has got off track and you've gotten off track and things aren't like what you thought, maybe, maybe life's not off track. 
Maybe the, the truth of the matter is you simply can't see the tracks. You simply can't see them. But just because you can't see them, that doesn't mean they're there. They're not there. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. You see, at the end of the day, the Lord is with us. We must trust him. We must trust the Lord because he knows where he's going. We have to trust the Lord because he knows where he's going. Even if I don't know where I'm going, I have to trust him because he, he does. He's been there. He's seen it. He can help me walk through it. I need to trust the Lord because he knows where he's going. He's never going to show me, you know, too far out. He's just going to show me the next step to take. And I have to trust him. I take this step, and he's going to show me the next step to take. And I've got to trust him in the process so that even if I find myself a slave in Egypt in Potiphar's house, I have to trust that the Lord is with me because he knows where he's going. And I may be thinking, God, I don't know what you're going to do in two days. And God said, I know what I'm going to do in 20 years. Trust me. Joseph's not going to see his brothers again for 22 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to, to be away from your family and how you thought life was going to be. When you're sold into slavery at 17 and then you're gone for 22 years, you're going to be completely different from what they knew you as. But so were they. And Joseph he would find himself there as a slave in Potiphar's house and everything yet to come. He had to trust that the Lord was with him, even there, not knowing what tomorrow will hold. Not knowing. And, and the way, this, this is just the way my brain works. I picture uh, Potiphar like the Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. Like, you did good today, Joseph. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Like, uh, it, it may be tomorrow, you're just not going to make it. Like, and that's the way Joseph had to operate. I trust the Lord for today, for this moment right now. And whatever comes, comes. I can't see it. I can't control it. I can only control whether I'm going to trust God right now or not. And then I'm, I'm going to leave all the consequences to him. Trust the Lord. He knows where he's going. It may not make any sense to you whatsoever. I guarantee you there's many most of the time, makes absolutely no sense to me. But that's because, here's the reason, I'm not God, <laughs> and neither are you. God is God, so we have to trust him, because he knows where he's going. And so that's a decision you have to make right now for yourself. Will I trust God with where I'm at? Will you trust God, first of all, with salvation? Will you trust God to save you? To, to, to save you from what's yet to come? Will you trust God and believe that Jesus is his son, that Jesus died so all your sins would be forgiven, and then he rose from the dead so we can live after we die? Will you trust him with that? And then once you trust him with that, it becomes a daily decision. Will I trust him today? Some of us may find it easy to trust him with salvation, but we find it hard to trust him with our money. Or we find it hard to trust him with why we have the job we have. Or we find it hard to trust him with our children or our parents or our friend who's making crazy decisions. 
Say, oh, I trust you with my salvation, Jesus, but I don't really trust you over here, so I'm going to go and do and say and try to manipulate and try to control them because I don't trust you over there, Jesus. But the thing about trust is it's got to be all of it. It's got to be all of it. You've got to trust him. Trust him with your salvation. Trust him with eternal life and trust him with everything else. Trust him with the phone call you're going to get tomorrow that you don't even know is coming. Trust him. He knows where he's going. Trust him that he can help guide you. Trust him that he is with you. And he is. He told us he will never leave us or forsake us, ever, no matter where we go. We talked about Jonah before. Jonah ran for thousands of miles from God. And when he finally decided to turn to God in the belly of a giant fish, what did he discover? God was with him the whole time. God is with you. Trust him today.